three of Literary Disco, the evil graphic novel edition. Today's episode in two parts. We'll begin with a bookshelf revisit in which Todd, Julia, and I grab something off our bookshelves to talk about. And then we will make Literary Disco history as we dive into our first two graphic novels. We'll discuss Goliath by Tom Gold and My Friend Dahmer by Durf Backdurf. Is, is that really his name? That can't really be his name, right? No. Uh, no, 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 no. His last name, Backdurf, became a nickname that he went by forever. Oh. That's gotta be it. Oh. Come on, guys. Oh. Don't you know nickname shit? Huh. People just called me fat ass, so I don't remember. <laughs> Having a lot of nicknames. A lot of people call me the gold standard. Well, let me introduce you, as is my job. I am actor and filmmaker <laughs> Ryder Strong, and joining me from Connecticut is essayist and radio personality Julia Pastel, and from the stifling heat of Palm Desert, we are joined by novelist oh. and critic Todd Goldberg. It is so fucking hot. It, it was 122 yesterday. Uh, really, really warm. Really warm. Everybody, all our listeners, happy knowing Todd's weather. <laughs> so really hot. So last night, I tell you what, I was I sweat like a pig in that bed. Just woke up in a pool of my own sweat and viscera. All right, like a like a, a, a one of our earliest episodes of Literary Disco. I am back at my parents' house, so I my bookshelf that I have to revisit is my childhood bookshelf, <laughs> and I have decided not to select a book from the Stephen King, Michael Crichton, and D&D books that line my wall. Instead, I'm going to go even deeper geek and talk about... And, and you should talk about the painting that's behind your head in your childhood <laughs> yeah, bedroom instead. I People, I, I, wish, I wish the listeners could see the dreadful <laughs> art that teenage Ryder Strong had in his boyhood home that is behind this was him a gift. now. This Good was a gift God. from my first girlfriend when we were 13 oh. years old. She got it's like one of those mall photographs of the black and white kids with red hats on. Do you remember these from the yes. early 90s? Look at that thing. It's glorious. God. Oh, it's horrible. So, uh, I'm going incredibly uh, deep geek with my revisit and I'm going to talk about a video game, a computer game for the IBM called Monkey Island. Did either of you ever play or oh know about this God. game? Oh, my God. Yes. Jesus I actually have here Christ. Monkey Island 2, which is LeChuck's Revenge. Oh, my uh, God. Monkey so Island? What this is, is that? It's like oh the greatest God. video game ever made. So it was back in the days when, you know, graphics were horrible and computer intelligence was horrible. And so you had text-based video games. And, you know, this came out of the – there was like King's Quest and all these old-school video mm -hmm. uh, computer games – uh, but this one had, you know, good graphics for its time. But basically, it was like living inside of a novel, which is why I think it's appropriate to bring it up. Well, there's two reasons I wanted to bring it up today. One is because it actually did inform my sense of story and storytelling very early on at the age of 10 or 11 when I was playing it. But also because uh, it was a Lucasfilm game, and that company was recently bought by Disney, and they decided to stop making video games. And I think it's such a tragic lost for the art of the video game because they were pioneers in really making narrative games where your choices yeah. had effect and where you could choose multiple pathways through a game um you know if if you uh made one decision and said the wrong thing to the uh, person you wouldn't die necessarily they didn't kill you over and over that wasn't their methodology their whole idea was that if you got stuck in a game if you couldn't solve a puzzle or talk your way out of it you would just be stuck in the game and you would just sit there mm -hmm. so days weeks of my childhood <laughs> were spent playing the secret of monkey island which was the first yeah. game in the series Good i think God. they ultimately made four or five of these games but they, there's another game called Maniac Mansion, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners out there who are above the age of 30, this was our introduction to the kind of video games that are now completely ubiquitous. But because they were, because they were of an era where, you know, it was only a certain subset of the population that was playing these games, and a certain subset of children that were playing these games, they were really kind of insider jokey and really smart. And, um, you know, it's, it, it purports to be a pirate adventure game, but it was actually a complete comic adventure. It, was, it made no sense. It was all about, you play this character named Guybrush Threepwood, 
and you're struggling to become a pirate. You just decide you want to be a pirate. And then, of course, you find yourself wrapped up on some island in the Caribbean in a mystery with a missing governor. And then you have to save her from an undead pirate. And it's, it's basically a Hardy Boys book, yeah, is totally. what you're saying. But it was so creative. So they would do things like, okay, you have to sword fight. You have to learn how to sword fight before you can become a pirate. Well, their version of sword fighting, because video games weren't sophisticated enough for you to actually be able to manipulate buttons the way that you can nowadays with your you know 50 button controllers or whatever. It was a keyboard and a mouse. You would learn how to give good insults, and that was how to sword fight. It was to give good pirate-based insults. So your character, little Guybrush, would be on the left side of the screen, and another pirate, some big pirate with a sword, would face off to you, and you would scream insults at each other. And you would have to learn through trial and error which were the proper responses to insults and which were good insults and which were bad insults. <laughs> and it would just take you like you know hours to learn how to sword fight in this way. And it was so much fun. And, of course, I was 10 or 11, and I just loved these games and it made you know being a bored geeky 11 year old the greatest thing ever and I, it taught me a lot about narrative i think and i just really am saddened by the fact that lucas arts is no longer they still license games so there is still the potential for another video game company to make a, another monkey island game or one of these other you know titles in their series but um it just is a sad it's a sad loss for that style of game which i guess in a way it doesn't it can't really exist anymore because now you just have mul online multiplayer no, games that i mean that I think there that, are lots there's of games tons like of that them now, like that i mean that's 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 yeah. basically what the evolution of video games has been so you know from grand theft auto on basically right. that's what it has become and in fact there's there's a ton of video games video game companies that are um, hiring novelists to write their video games oh, and so screenwriters to, to write their video games because it is so narrative-based now. I mean, it's that is literally the wave that it's going in. Now, if you read okay. Tom Bissell's book about um, video games, he talks a ton about how that's happening. And, and it's also just because I, that's, you know, the, the narrative of video games is infecting, obviously, filmmaking and TV shows and book writing because that's what kids are growing up with now more than reading is playing these video games. The, the difference for me now is like if I, I mean, if I've tried to, I've, when I've tried to play video games like Grand Theft Auto or more sort of sandbox games, um, the gameplay is more physical. Like the gameplay, like for instance, if you had to sword fight in a, a video game now, it's like a you, Prince of you Persia. Just fight. Yeah, yeah, it's like a, it's a, the, the mechanisms have gotten complicated enough that they don't have to rely on character and story as much. That's not saying they don't, maybe they do, but that's why I disengage from video games is because they actually became better as video games. And so the art form sort of moved in the direction of, you know, virtual environments and virtual beauty and the, the, those things. Whereas when these <clears> games were being made, they couldn't. They couldn't make it look beautiful. They couldn't make it a completely immersive environment. So you were still using your imagination at this sort of lower level, and it became more about the inside jokes and the references to their other games and characters, and they would build on themselves. So the first, you know, you could play these games multiple times, and it would be a different experience, and you would be, you would feel like you were part of the sort of small subset of people that were following this story. And I just think that those, the creative, the limitations of the form made it more creative, not necessarily narratively, because, but certainly in terms of character and, um, and setting, you know, they were thinking outside of the box more. Nowadays, it's more like, let's replicate 1940s noir LA. And that becomes, you know, let's program a map of the entire city of Los Angeles for you to roam around and do whatever you want and, you know, pick up whores or whatever, you know, it gets to this such creative freedom. And back then there was a real challenge for those developers to just focus on the text. And, you know, you didn't even have voiceover. There weren't actors voicing these characters. I had to read these texts. And You know, you know what the difference is? It's the difference between participating playing a game and being the game right. i mean that's what that's what video games are now is that you are you are in the game versus versus participating and it, it's it's a completely different which undoubtedly model is of gameplay. i mean i'm just yeah. nostalgic do you know what i mean like i yeah. just i just hold a dear place in my heart for these experiences um I'm sure it's better, and I, you know, I'm not really one to. I just think that as an art form, back then it still was more of a comic book. It relied more on the mm -hmm. words and and the characters, and maybe a little bit of the visuals and music. But now it's like visuals and music, and th those can be so more advanced, and so they don't have to. You you know rely on the you, the player's imagination as much. So I'm in a way, it's pure nostalgia, and it's not really. 
Did Did you ever play just a purely text based game? Of course. Oh, of course. Before oh, this, God. that's what I did. Yeah. There, I remember the first computer that I had was a K Pro Two. This was like, I mean. Julia, you weren't even born yet. This was like 1983 or something. Um, That is when I was born. I know. And, uh, like, it was just a blank screen, and you typed in, go to rock, look at rock, you know, go to cave. (laughs) And I would play that game for, like, 35 hours. I wouldn't ever get into the cave because I wouldn't know the right commands to get into the cave. And, oh, my God, I was addicted to it. Um, But, and in retrospect, like, it seems crazy that, that that could be it but i mean it was just it was just reading you know basically exactly. is all it was exactly it was just reading completely different and i think those of us who were kids who were real readers it immediately gravitated to those games you know yeah and it, you know yeah. it was As always it was always sword and sorcery stuff available at the time i never played like space invaders or you know all those like really fast-paced uh, arcade games i could never get into it. i much did you play you never played games. dragon's lair the first that was the like, worst game ever it was horrible like, when you could never figure out what to do kill you yes. within 30 seconds <laughs> yes. the eat your dollar yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was a money losing proposition well the only video game i've ever or actually this computer game that I've ever enjoyed in my entire life is Oregon Trail. It was gruesome. <laughs> oh, my yeah. God. It was well, Oregon Trail was similar. It was fantastic. It was, yeah. it was a role-playing game. Yeah, very yeah. similar. Same very animal. Similar. I mean, there was, no, there was absolutely no fighting. You're fighting against the wilderness. Right. You're fighting and against America. And you would always America. die of dysentery. Remember that? Like, you would lose... You would always die of dysentery. It was like Summers at Bennington. Your- <laughs> <laughs> so... Speaking of uh, summertime and and recollections of childhood, my revisit, similarly, Ryder, is from my youth. But something I read recently, well, not so recently, but within the last five years, um, Jaws by Peter Benchley, the oh, novel. Wow. I never read this. Oh, wow. Me neither. You know why I thought of it was I was thinking about it while we were reading Seating Arrangements a couple weeks ago. Um, because Naturally. I was... Re- I was Well, the, here's the thing is that <laughs> the book <laughs> Jaws... This, this is you know what would make this wedding sure. having someone oh, exactly. eat someone I, I know where you're going with the whale is that what you're thinking or no because jaws the book if you've not read it which you guys haven't it, there's it's a huge story about class struggle on the small uh no. coastal town yeah i mean that is like the it's about tourism industry it, it's about tourism it's about is. class yeah the, the movie is not doesn't Townies. have the same stuff it's, it's a lot about class and where people fit in in the city the sheriff's hmm. family compared to everyone else's family oh, wow. um and there's there's all this you know stuff about you know, the people that come in just to visit versus the people who are there constantly it's it's yeah. a, a a big social novel too and I read it. I taught a class on uh, on adaptation. This was a couple of years ago, and uh, we read this, and we read The Godfather, and we read Shawshank Redemption, a bunch of other stuff. The Godfather, the book is horrible. Um, <laughs> it just it's absolutely dreadful. And there's huge sections in The Godfather all about the size, shape, and dexterity of women's vaginas, which I encourage all of you to read, and which was awkward to talk Great. about in class. But Jaws has all this stuff about about um, you know the population, the city, all this stuff. But the one thing I had forgotten about, and I'd read this book when I was like 12 or 13 or something, and then again for the first time, and when I was, uh, you know, uh, again a couple years ago, I'd forgotten that there's sections from the shark's point of view. Oh, God, just like Cujo. The opening paragraph of the book is, The great fish moved silently through the night water, propelled by short sweeps of its crescent tail. The mouth was open just enough to permit a rush of water over the gills. There was little other motion, an occasional correction of the apparently aimless course by the slight raising or lowering of a pectoral fin as a bird changes direction by dipping one wing and lifting the other. The eyes were sightless in the black, and the other senses transmitted nothing extraordinary to the small, primitive brain. The fish might have been asleep, save for the movement dictated by countless millions of years of instinctive continuity. And then it goes on and on and on and on and on and on. But there's there's little um, little shifts to the, sh- the shark's point of view throughout the novel, and it's you know it's sort of a benign point of view, other than it's Hungry. the point of view of the 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 desire for human flesh. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, the the big thing about the book is that the best is that the best part of the movie is not in the book, which is the whole conversation about being on the Indianapolis. Um, that 
the uh, that Richard Dreyfus has with what's his name on, on the ship. That that whole conversation is yeah. made up. Mm. Um, but this book, as a kid, scared the crap out of me. As an adult, there's absolutely nothing terrifying in the least about it. It's just a fucking fish. It just sounds like a description of sharks. Yeah, it pretty much is. <laughs> uh, here's the other thing about the novel Jaws: is that it's really short and it's not very good. <laughs> It's a, it's one of those instances where the movie far exceeds the quality of the book. But really weird about all the social stuff. So I, if, if you love seating arrangements, I recommend Jaws as the perfect summer compliment. So I'm still on my Stephen King tear. And I just read The Shawshank Redemption. Or Rita Hayworth and The Shawshank mm, Redemption. How was it? Good story. It is unbelievably yeah. good. I yeah. was riveted. And I've seen the movie several times. And... It is exactly the same. Except that Red's not exactly. Red's not African American in the in the story. Right. Is that true? He's red. He's a red. Yeah, he's a red-headed he's a red-headed guy. Head. Yeah, named Red. Oh, I never realized that. Yeah. <laughs> but otherwise, um, it is. I, I mean, every detail that I could find was exactly exactly the same. But somehow, um, I was absolutely riveted, and I, I was wondering very much about why that was. I mean, there was absolutely no suspense. I knew exactly what was going to happen, but it was just, it was so well written and it was so well paced out, um, that I was reading it as if I had, was reading it for the first time or experiencing the story for the first time, I guess. So that's my revisit. I don't have a lot more to say other than I was stunned by the fact that I was equally as interested in it as if I was a totally fresh reader. It was very weird. And and now I'm in the middle of apt pupil, which is very strange. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing about Stephen King, you're probably experiencing while reading all of his books in preparation of your talk with him, is, and and I think we talked about this a little bit last episode, but I really think that he's a better writer when he's not writing horror. Like Shawshank Redemption, yeah. apt pupil, or a lot of this just regular short stories, or even... Um, you know, even a book like The Stand, which is sort of the horror, is sort of horror, but it's you know more dystopian. It starts more realistic. I, I he for me as a reader, I I always found him to be far more compelling writing those retrospective stories than than just the horror stories. But that might just be a personal taste that I you know I love any book or story that begins. It was the summer of my fifteenth year, yeah. and dot I'm dot, in. dot 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 I'm dot. In. <laughs> I mean, the, the next thing could be like in. Uh, uh, Jaws, the Great White Death shows up, but anything that is that retrospective thing, and that might be why I sort of it's the similar voice in Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter, kind of right. got me started Ooh, right away. Right. You know, nostalgia. it's sort of a Stephen King story. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Well, and you feel a narrative distance, like the narrator has a control over what they're saying, and I far prefer that. I think I've mentioned on the podcast before my distaste for present tense writing because. I love so much the feeling that someone is analyzing, even if it's a fictional character, analyzing, just, understanding. Just to be, just to be more clear, Julia, just 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 so I'm clear on this. Have you read any of my books? <laughs> I know they're in the present tense. Well, there's a, not I don't all of them. Like there's a couple just, of them. I'm just just but, just thought I'd wheel that out there. <laughs> yeah, I know, but I, we all have our taste and preferences. <laughs> I just. Let's not get personal on here. <laughs> I do think that there's, and I mean, I've written in the present tense a lot, and I, I think there's a way to do it really well. I just think there's more, that nostalgic voice that you yourself are in love with and defending. I'm just fucking with you, Julia. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think, yes, that slow parceling out of information is very strong in the Reader Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. So. Oh, I can't wait till you get to read the body. I really want to hear what you think of the oh, body. The body's I have to really reread good. it because yeah. I, so I read that book, you know, a long time ago before it was before Shawshank Redemption, the movie came out and then I love Shawshank Redemption, but I had already seen Stand By Me and become obsessed with it. So I I read that book because yes, we yes. All know I was like seven <laughs> I, when I saw Stand I By Me. I did not know you were obsessed with Stand more, By Me. Let me tell you tell you more about it. No. <laughs> Dear listeners, Ryder Strong can recite huge, huge chunks of Stand By Me, but only if you're walking through a wooded right. trail. Right, only if, it, if you want to be creeped out. Some people, like, they can recite Romeo and Juliet or other important books. Ryder, it's about a dead kid. <laughs> All right, on that note. <laughs> That's perfect. Good transition into Jeffrey Dahmer. Great. That is. That's not bad. transition. <laughs>
Welcome back to Literary Disco. Uh, so now we're going to crack open uh, our first couple graphic novels, something that we've talked about doing for a long time, but we haven't actually found the right books to read. And this, you know, these two books that we picked uh, actually work out pretty well because they're both kind of uh, takes on villainous characters, uh, but m- more like humanizing villains, I would say. The first book we're going to talk about is Tom Gauld, uh, Goliath. Uh, Tom Gold is a Scottish uh, illustrator and comic writer. He publishes mostly, as far as I can tell, um, he publishes a lot of stuff in newspapers, in the Guardian newspaper, actually. Um, and Goliath was only published last year, and uh, it tells the story of David and Goliath, but from the point of view of Goliath. It's a short little book. What did you guys think of this? You know, I don't read a lot of graphic novels. It- uh, I read more. I read a lot of Snoopy books, as we've discussed earlier, and we can talk about that in a separate episode where Ryder once again deconstructs why Charles Schultz uh, was the Antichrist. Um, but so I don't read a lot of graphic novels, and I, I read this one first of the two books, and I got to the end of it, and I was like, "Huh? So that was seventeen dollars for a one-note joke about Goliath being uh, sort of an ironic, unwilling Goliath." So that was that was I think amusing. There's a lot more to it. That than was that. amusing. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I I found it enjoyable, but I was I, I I didn't. There was no there was no depth for me. I, I was just like, oh, I mean, it's okay. I read it in tw- like okay, well, twenty five minutes. Here's what I, I mean. I read it. I mean, yes, it was very short, very short. But I think I mean I read a lot of graphic novels and. A graphic novel work, if the art is saying more than a story could say or wants to say. And I think the art in this book is extremely beautiful. And you should not look at this as a one-time reader book. Um, short. It's not, it's not, I wouldn't even put this comparable to a short story. This is a piece of art that you're going to look at and experience and interpret a few different ways. And I... Yes, there's some cutesiness with the joke about him wanting to do admin work and stuff, but I think there's a much larger and more deliberate thing to interpret here, which is the pointlessness of war, how we turn people into soldiers, what we make them do, how they have to go out. I mean, what what I the point that I really enjoyed about this book was that Goliath didn't just go out one day and say this biblical line. Um, once it was said he was forced to over and over every day declare that someone should fight him until finally someone gave in and fought him. Obviously, David killed him with a pebble. We all know that. Um, and I, I just thought there was something really beautiful about that. But the beauty in this graphic novel and in any good graphic novel is in the panels that don't have words or have very, very few words. I, I absolutely agree. I thought the art was beautiful. And as a piece of art, the book itself, like I almost bought these books and yeah. for my iPad, but instead I just got them as a book itself. The book is beautiful. Like I'm holding it up for you guys to see here, but obviously you guys have it too. I'm it, holding mine up too because I love it. It just <laughs> looks really cool. So here's here's my sort of uh, area of, um, it might just be my, my taste issues, is that because I knew the story already, you know, the David versus Goliath mm-hmm. story, uh, the the cutesy aspects of it, uh, you know, of, oh, you know, he's just, uh, he's Gunnar Ash from from my favorite Nazi book, Forward, Forward. Gunnar Ash. Well, he's, a, he's like an office drone, right? Like, Goliath is sitting there writing papers in the beginning. We don't even know what he does. No, no one He just happens to be the biggest dude of the Philistines. The, the fifth and so best they pick swordsman, him, yes. Right, and so they pick him and throw him in armor and say, you're so big and scary, just stand out here and say something and scare away the, the small people who are, you know threatening us and so i like i got i got the the metaphorical side of it and i got all of that but i and the art was pretty to look at but i don't know if i would go back and look at it like i would look at a beautiful piece of art like i don't know that i would be compelled to pull it off of my bookshelf just to look at the panels again and so that makes me sort of wonder about graphic novels like this which are are really you know they're very easily digestible it's you know it's it's 25 pages of of it's less than 25 pages of text. You know, there's, it's like 20 minutes of reading time. Um, mm-hmm. About, you know, where it stands in the arena of fiction. Because that's what it is. It's fiction. Um, but are we looking at it? Do we judge the stories differently because it is... Are you saying the Bible is fiction? Is that what you're saying? 
I'm saying, That's a stance. I'm saying, I, I believe in the intelligent design of the Bible, which is a very pretty book, intelligently designed. You know, I'm just going to jump on what you were saying about reading it fast, because I find that that's my problem yes. with reading graphic novels, is that I read way too fast. And so I want to fly through. And what I appreciated about this book, more, more so than my friend Dahmer, the other book we're going to talk about, is that this one forced me to slow down. Yeah, I agree. Because there were whole page panels. There were, it, the layout is incredible. And I was forced to take a beat and look at the picture and think about you know, there's a lot of empty, there's a lot of negative space in these mm -hmm. drawings. And so there's a lot of, you know, small silhouetted characters and then huge landscapes with not much in them. They're just rocks and desert. And so by the end, I felt like even though I was, you know, forced to sort of be, I felt like I should have read it even slower. I should have, you know, lingered over every page. And in a way, this one, it, it reminded me of, um, more like children's yes. comic, mm -hmm. like children's books, Absolutely. like Where the Wild Things Are, where you're supposed to sort of look at a page and share it with your child and like look mm -hmm. and describe what's happening and then turn the page and what's going to, you know, that sort of pace fit this better. It, it felt mm -hmm. like like Snoopy comics mm -hmm. in some ways, like where it's like, you know, the, the, the main the punchline is just a character blinking at the at the screen, you know, or look, blinking at the camera just kind of like that happened and that that like distance and um <laughs> that sense of like cold distance and i i thought was really cool i know what you're saying todd that it, it's a little gimmicky and it's a little one note but i don't know i i but see your your point about having to linger over it i had the exact well i realized that i was missing stuff and had to go look at it but the Dahmer book which we'll talk about in a second that book, as I started reading it, forced me to go back and look at all of, like, when I got to the end of it, I went mm -hmm. back and looked at all of the pictures again because I went right. and read the end notes about where he's getting the facts right. about but those but those also photos. those pictures are crawling with yes. details, right? Like that is that is a that is a completely different approach to graphic design. That is or graphic novels. That is an approach where you are supposed to look at the background characters and their facial expressions and all the little details and signposts. This one is much more sparse and and um, effectively so, I think. I, I think I, so, too. I'm trying to think who I would recommend Goliath to. Like, who, who is this for? Because in my mind, it's for younger people. And, See, I'm not really... and there, there's a part of me that when I was reading it was like, this is sort of like a slightly older, more important giving tree. <laughs> and, and I know that that's a very simplistic way of looking at it. I don't think I'm going to interject. I really disagree. I think that we have culturally accepted that visual arts are for children for some reason, but I think that is changing now. The idea that adults should slow down and like take in these pictures as art is something that I think has a lot of value and worth and also is really popular. I mean, you're mentioning The Giving Tree, Where the Wild Things Are. These are books that resonate, I think, even more with adults than with children. You know, there's something within these pictures that has, there's a lot going on in them. In, in their nothingness, there is a lot going on in them because that is, that's what this book is about. It's about loneliness and waiting and introversion and reluctance. And those are things that is very interesting to try to graphically depict. And that takes patience from us. And I think that that's, you know, there's whole black pages in here. There's only, there's really only three colors. There's brown, black, and white. And, you know, I went to Israel recently, like I've been to the Holy Land and this is what it looks like, you know, bleak, long, empty, you know, and these are, there are moments and silences in graphic novels that I just think often do a better job, um, expressing those emotions and feelings than than prose does, or just a different job. You know what I mean? And so I don't think it's more childlike. It's just slower and simpler and less dense. And I think there is value in that that has nothing to do with children. See, I think I think part of my issue might be the sort of winking, um, you know, oh, Goliath is just really good at admin stuff, that it's sort of... It, it, appealed to, it appeals to me in some way, the book did... To the same way, I really like some New Yorker cartoons, and then really despise some New Yorker cartoons, where it's it's a winking nod to the intelligence of the reader and to our own cynicism and our own 
you know, idea of how mundane the world can be and how mundane, in this case, war and war in or against God can be, um, that there's no good or, or bad in these things, oftentimes just power. So, the, like, part of me as a reader, as I'm reading, I was like, I, I couldn't get beyond the idea that, of that one joke, you know? And and, and I think the, the art, notwithstanding that, I, I just kept thinking, okay, well, I know I know what's going to happen. I know how this is going to go. So I had a hard time appreciating the art as as a storytelling device and more just like the background to uh, a simple joke. And that that might just be, you know, a general statement on on my my ability to read graphic novels because I don't mm-hmm. do them very often. You well, know, and I think you know it's funny that you say because for me the joke thing. I noticed it right away. Obviously, it occurs very, very early. But then it really becomes something else. Like, much towards the end of the book, you know, there's all these panels of the desert at different times of day. And obviously, huge amounts of time has passed, days and days. And towards the very end, he says, I'm starting to quite like it out here. Mm -hmm. It's sort of beautiful, don't you think? And that has nothing to do with the joke. It has nothing to do with with anything other than like the complexity of being an introvert and alone (laughs) pretty much all the time. And I, I really think that there's a lot, if you can take your time with the panels as Ryder is saying, then there is more, a lot more in these teeny, teeny, tiny little details. I will say I didn't want Goliath to die. I, I, I was upset that Goliath got hit in the face with a rock. Which is kind of cool, right? Particularly as a Jew. (laughs) Because <laughs> historically, you probably wanted Goliath right. to die. Uh, just yes. sort of in the DNA, I'm rooting for David here. Um, <laughs> I think because of the comparison, if, if I just read this by itself and hadn't read my friend Dahmer and saw the extent with which you can use a graphic novel to really tell an in-depth and fascinating story, it, it might just have been a, a nice little 25-minute read for me. But compared to my friend Dahmer, which opened up so much interesting stuff in my mind mm-hmm. through the art and through the text. Um, I just think, oh, well, this is sort of like an entertainment, whereas my friend Dahmer ends up being literature. Have you guys ever read uh, the Zimborska poem, Hitler's First Photograph? No. no. Do you know about this? No. I was just, I was flipping through books, the uh, poetry books the other day, and, and I, I saw this, and then what you were saying, Todd, just how you felt about, I uh, didn't want Goliath to die, even though I'm a Jew, made me think about this <laughs> poem again. So I just found it online. It's called Hitler's First Photograph, and it goes, and who's this little fellow in his itty-bitty robe? That's tiny baby Adolf, the Hitler's little boy. Will he grow up to be an LLD or a tenor in Vienna's opera house? Whose teensy hand is this? Whose little ear and eye and nose? So it just goes on like that. But just the idea that, you know, it actually works really well with Dahmer and mm-hmm. Goliath in that, mm-hmm. you know, the, approaching these subjects, these ideas of, of pure villains and evil people that we assume to be evil or... And I think it's just more effective when it's a real person. You know, Goliath is such a distant character. You couldn't do what those works accomplish with Goliath as a character. Goliath is a cartoon. You know, Goliath is a cartoon character. Yeah, it's already on this mythic status. What's the difference between that and Grendel, though? I mean, there's there's the great book Grendel that you know explores the the, the Beowulf Mm -hmm. monster, obviously. So there's always dimension you can give to evil because evil invariably is not evil. I mean, it's evil in the things that it does, but it comes from generally something. Something causes someone to act in a horrible way. So in Goliath, the backstory is, you know, oh, a stupid admin guy who happens to be the biggest dude, he's pushed out there to, uh, you know, to do it. And so that's, I mean, it's funny. It's interesting. Um, right. But it's not as interesting as, as Baby Hitler. Baby Hitler I can get behind. <laughs> that are, that I'm more, really fascinated. Yeah, I know. I know we're about to move on. But it's it's more than funny. Like, that. there's something really in that. I mean, how many huge dudes do you know that have been to war. I know a few because they're I know huge few, yeah. dudes, you know? There's right. I really think that joke is maybe distracting to you from a lot of complexities. I don't know. I really I preferred Goliath to my friend Dahmer. <clears throat> I think my part of why I am leaning on it so much is that I absolutely love this art. I love this style. I love looking at it. Like I will go back to it as an artistic experience, totally outside of the text 
I know I, that I will do that. I know this will sit on my coffee table and I will idly look at these <laughs> pencil or the ink sketches of rocks because it's, it's really beautiful. See, what I keep on my coffee table frequently is my cocker spaniel and uh, <laughs> because she's very agile. A gentle giant. She's a gentle, gentle giant. giant. Although recently she uh, attacked and killed <laughs> rabbits in our backyard and that turned out not to be as cute as we thought it would be when she disemboweled uh, another cute thing in our yard. So just FYI, when you tell your cocker spaniel, go get the bunny, and then they do, it's not that fun. Not that cool. Speaking of disemboweling things in the backyard, (laughs) that moves perfectly into My Friend Dahmer by Durf Back Durf, sometimes known just as Durf, book that was published in 2012. Turns out that Durf Back Durf grew up going to high school with Jeffrey Dahmer, who I'm assuming everybody knows, but just in case, Jeffrey Dahmer was a notorious serial killer who... He actually ate people, right? Like, yes. I don't know. Okay. Yes. Todd, you, you, you've been on a Googling session. You probably know <laughs> I, a lot a little, more about... But Dahmer is... Yeah, he's, a, he's probably me. one of the most out there serial killers because he was trying to make zombies out of people. And he was just a really, really weird guy. But this book doesn't touch that. This book is like Dahmer the high school years. Right. And it's all apparently true and based on accurate sources that he lists in the back of the book. But it's a beautiful graphic novel. It's long. It's about 250 pages. And um, he went to high school with Dahmer. And it becomes sort of just a life in this Ohio uh, town that they grew up in. And um, how little he knew about what was brewing in his friend Dahmer's head. What did you guys think of this book? Uh, I absolutely loved it. I started, I was like, uh. So what the listeners should know is before we did this episode, I was like, eh. I don't want to really have to read graphic novels. And then Ryder suggested several of them. And just on the title alone, My Friend Dahmer, I was like, we're reading that. And anything else you want to pick <laughs> is absolutely fine with me. The thing about it that fascinated me, of course, is the proximity to Jeffrey Dahmer and what a serial killer was like as a kid. But it is the the evocation in the drawings and just in the time of that period in the late 1970s yes. in Ohio. Like, you can mm-hmm, taste it. Mm-hmm. Isn't it incredible? It. You, you, like, the yeah. bong water is still yes. wet on the floor. The clothing, the buildings, <laughs> yes. everything about this is so evocative of the time period. A big part of that is that he clearly owes a huge debt to Robert Crumb's style mm-hmm. of illustration. Oh so it has that, like, wavy, psychedelic, hairy like what is that i don't know how to describe that style but it looks like the 70s it yeah. just it looks, looks so like, like the 70s. yeah and the yeah. kind of flat you know the way their bodies are positioned are almost flat yeah. and blocky mm-hmm. and they, they just look and like then, tall everybody's muscles are bulbous like yes. everybody's yeah. like shoulders stick out too far and like everybody looks like they should have a muscular body but they just haven't eaten enough or worked out <laughs> enough <laughs> Am I wrong? Do you know what I'm talking about? It has this crazy, yeah, it has like this crazy like skin tight shirt 70s look that you just don't see nowadays. It's it's such a beautifully illustrated book. I think that is first and foremost its greatest strength. But then um, it's 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 really well written and well researched apparently too. I Mm -hmm. thought he was more kind of riffing until I reached the end when he goes through and he lists every chapter how he found all these interview sources with Dahmer who apparently has been very forthcoming coming about what his childhood was like and all of his experiences yeah but through interviews in the 90s once he was captured for his murders Mm -hmm. he was very open and then uh Dahmer's father wrote a memoir and so he has real sources and then he also has his own memories and um basically the portrait that emerges is that Dahmer was just kind of the weirdo friend that they let hang out with them and you know in the same way that a lot of us have groups of friends and there's always the one that no one really is individually one friend like one-on-one friends with but there's just that person you hang out with anyway Dahmer was that guy and then he just kept getting weirder and weirder and um god I I couldn't believe the levels of complexity to the character of Dahmer because there's this weird thing like that this book captured that I've never seen really captured well which is you know how somebody does something as a joke like an ironic voice or something and then it kind of becomes their identity absolutely Mm -hmm. that's what Dahmer does and Mm -hmm. it's incredible because it's something that I feel like as kids we all do into like early stages of high school and social awkward explorations you start doing a voice and it's usually making fun of another person 
in this case, Dahmer is making fun of his mom's interior decorator. But or no, his it's mom. really her, but it's really, yeah, it's really her. Right. Tells them it's the interior decorator, but it's right, her. That's right. Interior decorator who had cerebral palsy, and then his right. mom, though, also had just a, a huge variety of strange tics and convulsions and right. episodes. Um, but it absolutely, like, I, I I remember a kid in elementary school and middle school who just made fun of people with cerebral palsy all the time. Like, that was right. his game. Just like right. Dahmer's. It's just, I exactly. mean, it's, it's ab- Because there is, there, it's like, that, that becomes an entry point for a lot of people into a social world that they don't have access to, right? They mm-hmm. do, yeah. they do an impression of somebody worse off than them, mm-hmm. and then that becomes their identity. And this book just evokes that they, they all they, they start a Jeffrey Dahmer fan club God, it's so because weird. they're making they just love that he does this weird character, but that of course is masking the fact that he is gay and wanting to murder people <laughs> as a taste for human very flesh, young age. right? And yeah, I agree. I to- I just want to interject too. Totally agree. I think you know as I was saying earlier, you know what I look for in a graphic novel is something that is evoked through the art that is just strikes you in a new way that you don't know how else you would describe it in prose. And that is exactly what I experienced with this weird behavior. Like it keeps coming up, you know, later and later in the story as he's more and more ostracized, he keeps doing it whenever someone's like, Oh, is that Dahmer down the road? And they run into him and, and he'll just do a quick tick, you know, as an entry point into a conversation. And it felt so real to me in my experiences yeah. as a teenager, you know, right. can, can I, can, can we talk a little bit about the, the prologue, not the prologue, but like the author's note at the beginning, um, the convoluted history of my friend Dahmer. It's the preface. I believe they call it in, in, uh, proper terms mm-hmm. and in fact someone on our twitter said um that they really didn't like the book and then i read the review of it and they talked about this thing too so i thought might as well talk about it just for a second it's it's toward the end of the preface um durf says this is a tragic tale one that has lost none of its emotional power after two decades it's my belief that Dahmer didn't have to wind up a monster that all those people didn't have to die horribly if only the adults in his life hadn't been so inex- inexplicably unforgivably, incomprehensibly clueless and or indifferent. Once Dahmer kills, however, and I can't stress this enough, my sympathy for him ends. And it goes on. And then he says, pity him, but don't empathize with him. And it's a really interesting preface. And it's, it's, I, I, I think he, he does a fascinating job in here of trying to draw the complexity of Dahmer so that you do pity him mm-hmm. and you don't objectify him just as a monster but even still you choose whether or not to kill people um, and I don't know necessarily if parents can stop that or if a guidance yeah. counselor can stop that or whatever you know once he's on his own he's going to kill people if that's what he wants to do if you're if you're that crazy so i'm sort of interested how you guys felt about that in reading the book because i'm presuming you guys read the preface first mm-hmm. also i did not actually that's oh. the first i've read the preface i jumped right in i tend to avoid reading the backs of books or any sort of extraneous um yeah that's actually called the convoluted history of my friend Dahmer. so that's why i skipped it i didn't realize mm-hmm. it was kind of essential reading um yeah, I noticed, but he says that actually within the book itself, mm-hmm. he has mm-hmm. a moment where he says, you know, looking at him as a victim, which I don't always, I can't, I'll have to find exactly what he, he, he makes that same distinction, which mm-hmm. is that he pities him without empathizing with him. Um, and that, I don't know, I mean, I found that to be the most important lingering question of the book, which is, does, because th- this book is about setting so much, and we've talked about setting a lot on on this podcast, but this book evokes this town and the adults of this town and their relationship to the kids really, really well. And Dahmer's exclusion from the social worlds um, and, and any help and the fact that he was a functioning alcoholic all throughout high school and nobody seemed to notice. Right. Um, and that he would drink like they drive to the mall and in 10 minutes he pounds six beers in a 10 minute drive and mm-hmm. none of the other kids drink like the, the author of this book doesn't seem like he was drinking at that time so it's a crazy um, uh, alcoholism that Dahmer was was suffering under and the fact that nobody noticed that is insane and is something that is indicative of the time and place which I don't think people would get away with nowadays I mean I think the idea back then that you could be a burgeoning sociopath at the age of 14 was kind of unheard of like the whole notion of a serial killer was that it was something that you just that you went psycho and you snapped and it was so and I just think that nowadays we have a much more nuanced concept of I mean you look at a show like Dexter which I really 
can't stand. But <laughs> but part of that show is about empathizing with him, right? And and the whole conceit of that show is that the, his dad recognized that he was a serial killer, a sociopath, a psychopath, whichever terminology you want to use, at a young enough age that he was able to channel his serial killing to good, which is mm. kind of an insane I mean, it's extension of yeah, the same logic that's <laughs> operating in My Friend Dahmer. I mean, it's so over the top, but people love it. But it's a way for people to enjoy the fascination with serial killing, which I think is an enjoyment that we all, at some point in our lives, are curious about. This dark side of humanity, we're all drawn mm. into it. I mean, I remember women as teenagers that would go through serial killer phases and they would like you know and i just it happens like everybody goes through a phase where they're fascinated by these people and this idea of this kind of unexplainable evil um so i think that this book does it 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 does the best job possible i think in walking that fine line because i do think it's a fine line i don't Mm -hmm. uh, but i don't think he steps too far into the pity side i actually really because Dahmer was more forthcoming. It wasn't like he wasn't Manson, you know, who was completely manipulative no, he, and never he, given an honest interview in his he life. Didn't, he he clearly did not like himself, you know. There, right. There's at the beginning of each section, so it's broken up into, I believe it's uh, five sections. There's a section called Becoming the Monster, um, for instance. But isn't there a. Oh, no, it's not that one. There's. Well, but really, if you didn't know that Jeffrey Dahmer went on to be a serial killer, and this book does end with his first human kill but that's it like it's only his first human kill which kind of happens off screen or off screen off the off camera what's the term off the page Mm -hmm. i think that um just it's almost just bad enough to be gay and alcoholic in high school in this time and place and the fact that nobody noticed that is pretty damn bad yes okay i i want to answer your question todd because this is what is holding me back from truly loving this book i like this book a lot and i think I think that Mr. Backdurf is a better artist than he is a writer because I felt very often in the narration that he was making, drawing lines that I didn't trust. You know, like how many times did he go back to his parents fighting and getting divorced? I mean, there's some easy, easy, like, guesses that we can say, like, oh, he snapped because his parents were getting divorced. He snapped because, you know, he was lonely, you know? And I think that if I had read this as an, a prose piece, I wouldn't have, I, I wouldn't have liked it as much because I think he's finding, I think he's very actively looking for why. And I think he's answering questions that aren't in a false way to me. You know what I mean? Like when he says like, if only the adults had intervened, like, yes, but yes, but maybe not, you know, as, as you mentioned, the, and the adults, the adults wouldn't have stopped him from having thoughts, you know, I mean, that that's the, I think that's yeah. the challenge is, is that, you know, my parents were fucking crazy and divorced and, uh, you know, I'm not as far as you guys know, killing right. and eating people. Right. Um, so it, I think that leap, it, he does, I think he tries to make that leap about, the attentiveness attentiveness of parents but i mean you look at a book like columbine for instance and it doesn't matter how attentive your parents mm-hmm. are even in a good family if someone wants if someone's crazy if someone's a psychopath or a sociopath they're going to do what their brain tells them to do i mean that there's a, a yeah. fascinating thing i read recently about um the, the the used to be the presumption that there are two kinds of people people who are crazy and not crazy basically but psychopaths are a third kind Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that's, that's something that I think we have a more difficult time wrapping our minds around. In fact, it was one of our, my students wrote about this in a, a paper recently about that, the third kind of human being. Yeah. And so whether or not he drank a lot, whether or not his parents divorced or not, if he had a desire to kill people and to eat human flesh, the thing stopping him from doing that is either going to be society making him check himself into a, a clinic somewhere or, or blowing his brains out, or he's just going to do right. it. Right. Um, and how can you well, say, and I, I really agree with you. I th- and I think that there's a missed opportunity here to let the art tell all the story or so much of the story and not to have those concluding narrative things. That's exactly mm-hmm. what I mean. You know, when he would say, okay, like, well, that's interesting because still fighting, but we don't want that. Just show the fight, you know, show it quick, show it, you know, and let us draw our own conclusions. conclusions. That's what, 
graphic novels can do, and it, it's really that's actually a really that's a great that's a it. great criticism. You're right. I mean, I guess for me, I thought that a lot of those those narrative points were more questioning. Like, I took away it was more like, what if the adults had engaged? Sure. What if his parents hadn't you know gotten divorced? The thing that saves this book for me from the criticism you're leveling at it, Julia, mm-hmm. is that there's there's a personal element to it mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I think that there's this sense that he can ask all these questions and draw all these narrative lines, but at the heart of this book, there is, why didn't I do anything? Right. Why mm-hmm. didn't I know? Why didn't I see this happening? And, and you know, he didn't tell any adults either. Like, he didn't say anything. So there's right. a real personal yeah. sense of responsibility that is driving the pity and driving the, the connecting lines that he's desperately trying to make. He's trying to point anywhere, but you know, to himself. And that made it, that was the story that he, that, that Backdurf wasn't even telling, you know, Mm -hmm. that he wasn't maybe even completely conscious of that. I felt was screaming from this book. It's like, Mm -hmm. he's obsessively going over this period of his life, trying to remember, was, was I, was Jeff there that night? Mm -hmm. Were we talking? What did I say to him? I mean, that's what I felt throughout this whole book is like, when you hear about somebody being a killer from your high school and you hung out with them as much as he did and you drew him, I mean, he has drawings in here that he drew of Jeffrey Dahmer in high school, in high school over and over again. He drew, and it's like this insane, um, you know, that must've been such a weird, horrifying experience for him personally. And that, Actually, if there is a criticism for me, I wanted more of Durf, back Durf in this book. I wanted a little bit, just, I wanted it a little bit more of like, where was he and what was he going through? But he pushes himself to the side, which is a, a very conscious choice. Like, you don't see his home life that much. He makes some references to the comparisons between his home life and Dahmer's home life, but it's not a memoir in the traditional sense. No. It's like this pseudo memoir of a, a guy that he barely remembers. It's, it's a very, he's, he's sort of, his own unreliable narrator in his life you know yes, that, that yes. he's yes. looking at his life and realizing that what he did not know right which that's a great which is what fascinated me by it because they also had these similarities yeah, so Dahmer's father was a chemist and his father was a chemist they lived blocks away from one another in basically the same kinds of houses um but what you said about the drawings there and this is this is the wonderful well i mean there's lots of wonderful parts of it but he because he's an artist, he kept all of his art all this time. Yeah. And so there are the actual drawings he did in high school. And there's this bit, this is on page 118 in the book, um, where he says, My cartoon Dahmer was so ubiquitous, he became something of a bizarro school mascot. And then you see this, they, they, they made a campaign poster using Dahmer um, in his sort of spastic state, making fun of someone with cerebral palsy. Um, as this fake student council person, and there's a like a where's Waldo where Dahmer's in that, and everyone is saying things that Dahmer used to say. And then yeah, yeah. there's this one moment, this song, it, actually, it's on the next page. It says, and at this point in Dahmer's life, he had he was an alcoholic and having crazy thoughts. But what the author says is, whatever personality he once had, he being Dahmer, was gone. He was either in character or drunk or both. And that's just what you're talking about, that that person takes on the character writer. And that Mm -hmm. is so bizarre. I really like this book a lot, but I wish that, I wish, I think that that line from the prologue of, you know, I empathize with him up until the moment that he killed someone and then I don't, that's that's antithetical to the nature of this book. You know what I mean? That those two Mm. moments would be so deeply disconnected, you know? Yeah, you know, and there that that's the one part of when I was reading, and I feel this way about a lot of stuff that I read about, you know, people telling the true stories of horrible people that they knew, is that what point also is telling the story about this horrible person somewhat expo- exploitative to to the situation, you know? I mean, that's it's 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 not so different. Than, I mean, and I'm I'm no different. You know, I write essays about horrible shit that's happened to me, and that involves other people too. Um, but that I was deriving enjoyment from reading about this guy's childhood with a serial killer and then thinking about that I'm enjoying the drawings of this serial killer and the detail put into it. And then, you know, how does that, does that in some way make the memory of the dead people that he killed and ate somehow sullied? And that's sort of a moral thing that I think for me is related Hmm. to that issue of pity or empathy when I read something like this. Like, I felt a little dirty from it too, even though I really loved it. And and it was a very odd experience in that regard. Yeah. I mean, see, for me, I, I really do draw the line at like Dexter, mm-hmm. like Dexter disgusts me. 
because for some reason it that makes a cheap entertainment out of something but of course it's fiction so you know people are dying completely in a fictional reality whereas here you're talking about real real victims and so I guess my moral compass is a little fucked too. <laughs> I'm but, not sure I mean, where it falls. By the same token, you know, I I really enjoyed both those essays you read about that guy in Iowa who killed all those people. It was enjoyable. Mm-hmm. It was awful. But because maybe, you know, we are we're judging not the killer but the experience that happened to him. It's a little bit different for me. I don't know. But here's here, here, you experience. know what? That's actually a connection I want to make because I don't know if you guys remember, but it. I, I made like a last minute point about Joanne Beard that the world was fortunate that she was in that, that she was a good enough writer that when she went through this horrific experience, mm-hmm. she could capture this experience in such a way that would draw us all mm-hmm. into it. I feel the same way about this mm-hmm. book. Like, you know, I would rather that a great artist use his art to explore these issues, you know, including something like going to high school with somebody who turns out to be a serial killer. I mean, there's probably you know, whatever, 150 people in this world who had very close, weird experiences with Jeffrey Dahmer that couldn't write or draw. Mm -hmm. And so we would never get their stories and we would never get any steps closer to an interesting person like Dahmer. And I do think it is interesting. I do think it's worth exploring these things, whether, you know, I mean, or if somebody was a really great artist and knew one of Dahmer's victims Mm -hmm. and could write an amazing book about that, I think it would be just as interesting. So it's not just because it's a serial killer. It's because there is a story, there a narrative that we're all aware Mm -hmm. of. Just Mm -hmm. the name Dahmer haunts us all, like the name Hitler. You know, it's one of these, like, names. And so I think uh, the fact that the world was just kind of fortunate enough that Backdorf is talented to tell a story that is this well... I don't know. I just think that it's got to be told. And I don't think that there's much, I don't have much moral compunction about that. I really think that it's just drawing us into the human experience and all its diversity. Mm-hmm. That, that is what he accomplished. And, and I, I don't think he crossed any weird lines. I, 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 I think it was a really valid. I mean, it's also, it's also a book just about youth. You know, there, there's a great bit yeah. where he's going off to college and he really does a great job showing people just driving around. And that was about what happens in that city is just, they just drove around a lot. That was their entertainment. If you ever live in a small town, you know, that's what you do when you're in high yep. school. You drive around looking for <laughs> trouble, basically. Um, and kill drifters. And you kill drifters and eat them. Um, but he, you know, he to go to Julia's point about his writing, I mean, he says, this is on page 186, this was the end of some of those friendships. They were left behind, artifacts of youth, boxed up with my comic books and sketchbooks and journals and the rest of my teenage memento. mementos. And, you know, it's not, it's not the greatest uh, writing about childhood it's a little on the nose but it's his true experience and the drawings are what make it amazing mm-hmm. because you there's the the drawing of him behind the wheel of his car and then the car driving off through, you know through the darkened city and it really has that evocation of that time and so I, i'm willing to sort of let go some of the you know the bad narrative writing because it hits home to me on such a such a core emotional level just like we were talking about earlier about you know, I, anything that is in the summer of 1984, I first learned about my love of human flesh. Um, it, it's, it, it's a similar sort of thing. Um, and so I, I, I forgive some of those things because of that. And, I, and maybe I wouldn't or didn't in Goliath, you know, which is, you know, maybe my hmm. interesting dichotomy. Well, I agree with you. I think the narrative prose is just annoying. It's not book destroying. The art always takes precedence with a graphic novel. And Annoying, not book destroying. <laughs> a review by <laughs> Julia Pistel. The What this book did do for me is it made me want to read more stuff that, that um, Durf Back Durf has done. Um, and yeah. I, I didn't realize that this book apparently was a sensation. It was a national bestseller. It was the best of 2012 and basically every single newspaper and magazine in America. And somehow it was completely off my radar entirely you know nowhere near my mindset which is strange to well, me because that's good that's a good point though because i think graphic novels still as much as they're mainstreamed more than they were 10 years ago they still occupy a, a unique space mm-hmm. you know they're not they're not at the same point of literary fiction for for most of america or most of the world and um so yeah, the fact that they're off your that that they're completely off your radar, considering how much you read and and get sent books right. to review, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Can I say one more thing um, that I find absolutely fascinating is that he sources his drawings. Mm-hmm. So in in the back of the book, you know, he basically goes just about 
page by page and says, okay, this is how I know about the inside of his house. I, I know I said I didn't spend much time in it, but I went back in it because a friend had a party there after they had moved out 15 years later, and it was all the same except for the furniture. So some of the furniture I've changed. And I was like, oh, my God. I mean, I, I don't expect someone to source their drawings, and he sourced his drawings. It was really a remarkable well, thing Well, I think he knew he would be under scrutiny mm-hmm. for exactly what we were yeah. talking about earlier. You know, the fact that he was – he was there is the, you're always under the charge that you're going to be glorifying the serial mm-hmm. killer. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and how do you – glorifying or, or at least humanizing somebody that shouldn't be humanized and that – Yeah. You know, I think there are a lot of people that will never, never put up with a book like this. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, great idea, Ryder, for us to yeah, read one. Uh, one great graphic novel and one kid's book. <laughs> great idea for us to read about two killers. Yes. Villains. <laughs> two, yeah. two bad two guys, two villains. Yeah. Um, so that was Goliath by Tom Gold and My Friend Dahmer by Durf Back Durf. Great book. Um, come up at your local serial killer and biblical anti-hero store for your <laughs> I would shop there. I would shop there. <laughs> And that's it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we discuss Dorothea Lasky's poetry collection, Thunderbird. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco, and follow us on Twitter, at literary disco. Thanks for listening.